A dysfunctional culture creates crazy feelings, creates anxiety and depression, which everyone has had throughout the pandemic and probably has to some significant degree anyway. Not because we're defective or dysfunctional, that's a normal reaction to this craziness. So for me, the question is, how do we, we can't turn off the noise, but how do we stay aware enough to not let it enter our space? Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. If you've been listening to this podcast regularly, or if you know me well, you know I live a life and career aligned with my values, and I help others to do the same. Last weekend, I was out with a good friend. My leadership coach self can't help but ask my friends how their jobs are going. Work is such a big part of life, and there's so much change going on right now for everyone. After a long discussion, my friend called me a career therapist. It was the best compliment ever. No, I'm not a real therapist, but I can help you find career clarity to give you clarity on what matters most. And that's why I've built the You Belong in the C-Suite group coaching program. In the six month program, I help you gain clarity on what matters most, create the action plan to get there, to reach career fulfillment and lead as your authentic self. Here's what some of the program participants are saying. Because of this program, I've been more intentional about understanding my values and aligning my professional and personal life according to what I value most. I've also taken the time to deeply reflect on how I want to show up as a leader. This program has shown me that it's okay to make decisions that are truly in my best interests. I know that if I'm 100% true to myself, I can lead in more powerful and impactful ways. Another participant said, participating in this program helped me gain the clarity I needed on what was most important to me in my career. The exercises, reflections, and conversations with supported women have helped me to make a career change that I would not have otherwise made. The structured framework coupled with a dynamic dialogue allows for personalized experience in a group setting. Best of both worlds. If you are a high achieving woman and want more fulfillment in your work, learn more at thecatchgroup.com. Apply to You Belong in the C-Suite Group Coaching Program now. Welcome to our first episode in season two of You Belong in the C-Suite. We are so excited to start this year with you. I hope you had a restful holiday season. We are only a few weeks into January and doesn't it already feel like the holidays are months ago? Thanks weird pandemic continuum of time. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Sherry Foose. Sherry's a licensed marriage and family therapist who holds a master of arts in clinical psychology from Anatoc University, Los Angeles, and a master of science in narrative medicine from Columbia University. 
As a sought after expert on the subjects of relationships and meaningful connection, Sherry's writing and commentary have appeared in a range of online and print publications, including Real Simple, Huffington Post, Thrive, Shondaland, Women's Health, and Bustle. I loved our connection and discussion, and I love that we're kicking off the season with this discussion. We talked about the importance of real talk, the narrative method, a method to teach others how to connect in life and work. We talked about practicing radical gratitude and steps to move past a toxic work environment as you move to a new work environment without bringing all of that past trauma with you. I hope you are able to dig into this discussion with some actionable items. Let's get started. Well, I'd love to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast, Sherry. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm just really excited that we're connected and really excited to dig into our conversation. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your story? Well, I grew up in New Jersey in an abusive household. And in addition to not being really seen at all, I I had the experience of having all of these questions and all of these ideas, but there was never a conversation about anything except, you know, pass the meat uh, in my house. And so I longed from the bottom of my heart always to have real talk. And I've kind of always hated small talk. So through my life, and especially when I was an adolescent, I became really rebellious because I didn't know what I was asking for. It's not that it was all around me. And so I would just be so frustrated with not getting down to what mattered in relationships. So I became um, a writer and a performer in my 20s, and I had a great time doing that. And it really helped me, singing in particular, really helped me exorcise a lot of those demons. And then in my 30s, I went back to school and became a marriage and family therapist. And I think I was always this. So it, it was just so gratifying to be able to walk with people through their journeys and help people understand their lives separate from the things that have happened to them. And that idea has really carried through to the narrative method, which I'll pick up on in a second. So in my late 30s, I moved to New York for three years with my family on a whim, because life is short. My husband said the words, we should move to New York. I said, yes. My then 15-year-old kid said, yes. And then my husband said, well, I didn't really mean it, but my house was already on a truck. So, (laughs) So... While there, I opened a small practice for psychotherapy and discovered the narrative medicine program at Columbia University. And I did that master's program and it really changed my work. And the reason is because it was so steeped in social justice and all of these sociological issues that I've cared deeply about, but can't exactly address in psychotherapy. And so as I was developing the narrative method, which is conceived as a way to not just teach empathy, but help people learn how to connect and to sort of start in the middle instead of, you know, like dogs smelling each other for a a long time. Let's get to it. What is there really to lose? We don't like each other. We don't have to go further, but let's show who we are. And so I started doing groups with underserved populations. I've done hundreds of workshops with veterans who've been in and out of jail, 
unhoused people, uh, a lot of work with youth. And eventually we started working with companies and universities. And in companies, we do anything from going through your entire company so that ultimately every single person has a one-on-one -on -one with everyone else. And, you know, if you work at a big company, you might find yourself not making eye contact with certain people because you've never really been formally introduced. And that's terrible. How, how can we change company culture so that nobody feels that way ever? And even if you've never seen the person before, it's fine to go up and say, hi, I'm Sherry, nice to see you, or whatever that would take. How do we start looking at the company culture, first of all, as real relationships, boundaried as all relationships have to be, but also as real relationships where when we can meaningfully connect, we certainly can work better together. When we understand someone's background and it turns on our light about why they may have acted or said a certain thing, we can somehow pull back, look at a big, bigger picture. And by putting yourself aside, when you're listening to someone else's story, you can hear it from their perspective instead of going to insult or misunderstanding. So that's really the core of it, to bring people together, to make the working environment positive, something you look forward to because you care about these people. Oh, I love that so much. And I love your journey. What, a, what an amazing story and how you, you got to where you are now and doing this work. Yeah, well, it's, you know what? To be at a point in your life where you can live a little more in the present and not so much you know, how do I get to there? How do I get to there? But the truth is we're always there. We just have other goals. And to be able to live in gratitude for what we do have right now is forget important or good for us. We need it to be able to deal with the complexity of, a, of an alienating world. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the context on your background. You mentioned the narrative method. Um, can we go a little bit deeper in it? And I'd love to hear, um, you know, I, I have my, my background is in research. So I love to hear the research behind things. So do you, do you mind telling us a little bit more about the research um, that formed the narrative method and how you use it right now? Much of the research was originally based on uh, narrative medicine. Um, which is already a multidimensional field, and it's it's serious. It, nobody thinks of it as you know psychology, where, which is like a vague science to a lot of people. But it's concrete, and it was conceived as a way to teach empathy to doctors through getting to know characters in reading literature. Oh, so so many doctors don't read fiction, and. What we started to see in all of the research is that simple things like eye contact, like wanting to hear your patient's story, and the very simple communications that we do in the room through body language, uh, facial expressions, and all of the ways that we always can feel if someone's connected to us. Well, guess what? People, patients follow their protocols and take better care of themselves and get better faster 
when they have this relationship with their doctor. You can extrapolate that to everything. But the point is, now we have hard evidence. It's just, it's not just some psychologist's opinion. We have fMRI machines to see when people share stories, both of their brains light up in the same place. Mm. And that is so important to understand because like your phone or any of your tech, if it's not being charged, it's not going to work. We need charges from other human beings. Alienation is very easy to fall into and it's easy to break. And people need to know that it's just one step at a time. So that appreciation for what happens in the human being when fight or flight starts happening, when people are soothed from each other's presence, just because someone is there. When you go to a professional, no matter what your problem is, unless it's taxes or something, chances are they're not going to fix it. They're going to sit with you and help you figure out what you're going to do. And in that way, we take agency in our lives. And so how are you using that with individuals, with leaders, and then in organizations? So depending on the company's needs, we might go in and just work with HR okay. uh, or DE&I. And the thing about our work versus DE&I, we cover the same content, but rather than teaching it in a didactic way, we provide an experience. So, you know, if you tell me, don't say this word, do say that word, it's one thing and I'm, you know, there's a certain level of anxiety trying to remember it. But if we put a pin in that, and remember that every human being has these capacities, most human beings have these capacities. And when you tap into it, magic happens. So for example, we offer groups, uh, let's say within uh, your particular department or various departments, however the, the company really wants to work it through. And in very short order, because we're having a real-time experience together, we may be looking at a painting or a video or some audio piece or something. We all experience that. Then we get a prompt and we'll go into breakout groups. And with that prompt to evoke stories that that reminds us of, it's not on the money. What it is, is it's on the humanity. So the point is we all can think of a story about a time when we had to stand up for ourselves, even though we didn't know you know, what, what the consequences might be. Uh, and as people share their stories, no matter what the content is, the way we speak, the words we choose, the way we physically express ourselves says so much. And as we can have a real sense of the depth of someone, a lot of those other questions either become easy to ask because you're, you're not asking it in uh, an anxious way, but you're asking it because I want to, how, how would you like me to refer to you? Mm -hmm. um, it's a very easy question, but if you're in a didactic situation, and you'll see sometimes people will say, well, when it comes to LGBTQ, I don't know the pronouns. And that can be off-putting, particularly for someone who is LGBTQ or for someone who is African-American who doesn't really want to teach you what they may feel. You, you go out and learn that and then come back. So it takes the aggression and anxiety out of getting to know people. 
Oh, I, I really love that connection on story. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it um, taking out some of that anxiety, hopefully you can have just more authentic conversations. Absolutely. I mean, that's what else do you want at the end of your life? We all have read these last final statements of people who are dying. And we all know when we're in a deep place of sorrow or joy, what matters. And what matters is our connection with other people mm-hmm. and purpose and meaning and feeling, as you say, like we've lived our own authentic life, not striving to be somebody that we can't be anyway. Yeah. Right? I, I feel like even now it's more, it's more so because of the pandemic, right? It's like, Hey, we're rethinking everything they're talking about Absolutely. is losing their, leaving their jobs with the great resignation and all the stuff. But really, is is it really more like just a point of reflection? And then people saying, this is really what I want. And this is what matters to me um, to be authentic. Um, like you said, like at the end, like, what do you want? Um, you don't want to be at a bad job. You don't want to work for a bad manager. You don't want to be in a toxic relationship. And a lot of the people that I'm coaching are thinking about that. Like what matters most to me right now at this point in my career And sometimes they're leaving those toxic work environments, right? They're leaving because that money isn't that career ladder there just is not as important to them. My next question for you to get to, you know, these places that people can thrive. You know, a lot of people are leaving some of these toxic relationships, either toxic relationships or toxic work environments. And they're bringing with them and they have, you know, had trauma or they've experienced bias or whatever it is. And so, you know, how do you move once you've like left that place that you don't want to be anymore? How do you move into this new place? And how can you like, how can you not make sure that that trauma doesn't impact your current perspective at your new spot? Like, is that is that possible? How do you do that better? Because I think a lot of people are in that situation now as they do figure out what's not working to get to what is working. That's the million dollar question. And I think you use the word better and better is the goal. You know, nobody's going to go from A to Z. And if you have had trauma, and obviously there are different levels of trauma. I think every human being has experienced it, of course, but If you have had trauma that is predates your job, but your job just evokes it, it's a deeper issue. If somebody was cruel to you at work, but that, you know, hasn't been sort of your history, you could probably move through it more easily. But the the biggest answer to this question is step by step. We can't expect ourselves to just get over something. Like if you're almost hit by a car, you're going to be panicked for a certain amount of time. When you have gone through something that has overwhelmed you to the point you can't put it in words, that's what trauma is, that it, it, it hits you in your most primal amphibian brain. And in that place, all you have is feeling and pictures. So the goal is always with trauma or any complexity that overwhelms you, How can I break it down so I can see what it is? Mm. Journaling is really helpful. Sharing this story with a trusted individual or a therapist is really helpful. But there's no one way and there's no immediate way. 
but don't let the fact that you can't immediately go 180 deter you because here is the truth around all human change. If you think of a rocket ship, this is one of our 12 core concepts. Mm -hmm. Think of a rocket ship speeding into space at a zillion miles an hour and it changes its trajectory by one degree, it will land somewhere else. And so with us, it starts with a baby step and that baby step might be, I can't completely explain it. I really don't wanna go without an income, but I can't stay here. So then you go home and lots of things come up. So maybe you start writing and maybe you're writing several different things at once. Maybe one is just a complete freeform journaling and another is asking yourself very specific questions like, what matters to me? What would a good life look like? What is my particular purpose? Not so much looking at the people in the world we admire, because that's good too, but to stay focused on appreciating in without modesty, what's really different and strong about me that I think most people don't have. Whatever those qualities are, the things that we love about ourselves, those are the things that you build on. And even if what you love about yourself is something like compassion and your field is accounting, how can you bring that to your work? And there are always answers. There are always ways, but we have to create them ourselves. So it's our job to invent ourselves. In the past, there was no model. Nobody ever spoke about such a thing. And everyone who you know, how to invent themselves was starting from scratch. But now there's sort of a massive appreciation that you have the right to design your life mm-hmm. and your work in a way that's meaningful to you. And you have the responsibility because you've been eating the food and drinking the water here to give back to the world. So how are you going to do that? And again, small steps, small steps will take you to another place. I love that imagery of the rocket because it is just one little degree and you are in a completely different place. And I think sometimes these toxic cultures just feel all or nothing I know, and overwhelming. And, you know, we find ourselves in this new environment and this new role or wherever it is. And the first negative thing that happens like, oh no, here it comes again. Mm-hmm. And you're all the feelings from the previous place come up. Yeah. Um, but really maybe it's just, you know, it's just a bad day or it's just a, the new place isn't going to be perfect. Right. Or it's, it's, it's a deep rooted, unfinished piece of your own psyche. And, and that's okay. First of all, it's important to know that we all have these unfinished parts. There are parts of us that are so developed and sophisticated and wonderful, and everybody's kind of a jerk too, but no pressure. We don't have to be God. So, you know, in our language, we talk about separating yourself from the things that have happened to you so you can be who you really are, Mm. your authentic self. And being who you really are involves a whole process of asking yourself questions and finding these answers over time. Again, don't ever beat yourself up because it's not all clear in a moment. Nothing profound is going to happen in an instant. And that appreciation for the time it takes 
is benefited with self-soothing tools. For example, we do something so simple that I call hand to heart. So you take your dominant hand, which is, think of it as the part of you that is the most adult, most competent, and you put it on your heart. And that hand is allowing you to feel like, I don't know exactly how, but I've got it. I figured everything else out, just to remember that. But from the inside, you feel the comfort of a good parent. And so the parts of you that are kind of all over the place are feeling the soothing as well. And the reason I like this is because you could do it any place. And to connect with your heart reminds you that you're not just one monolithic thing. We have so many characters inside. We have the child, we have the student, we have the person who went to that job and felt badly about themselves. But all of these parts are part of a whole. Not any one of them is sufficient to symbolize all of us. And that is one of the core reasons why we can't make assumptions about other people. So everybody has um, a story of someone that they could not stand. Let's say it's somebody at work or at school. And one day you find yourself somewhere else with this person. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I didn't see this. I really like this person. You're beating yourself up and loving this person at the same time. It's that. They weren't any different before you saw the rest of them. Circumstances or where you were at may have made them look a particular way. So in the same way that I'm asking people to have patience with their own process, we have to have patience with other people. If they're not feeling safe, they're probably not going to show you who they really are, whether or not that's conscious. So it takes time and we need to really be loving to the fact that you cannot just snap your fingers. It's like losing weight. It just doesn't happen on the day that you thought of it. Yeah, absolutely. I love all of these stories and analogies and um, just different ways of, of thinking about these things. You mentioned, you know, thoughts about yourself in the last example, and I'd love to dig into that a bit more. Um, this idea of like, you are not all of the things in your mind, or you are, you are different parts. You are not your feelings, like all of that stuff. Um, I coach high achieving women and there is just a, a very similar uh, theme of imposter syndrome. It's very mm-hmm. prevalent in people that I coach and me also, I'm also, I have imposter syndrome as well. And so many do. And many of these thoughts are negative, right? They're usually negative. Like yeah, I'm not good enough. I'm not this, I'm not that. It was that thing I said, stupid. Um, am I dressed the right way? Do I look the part? Do they think I can do it? Um, you know, all of these things. And most of the time they're not actually true. Right. But logically it's hard to see that. And it's hard to separate ourselves from these negative thoughts. So how, how do we like, is it true? Is it false information? Like how can leaders learn to kind of replace some of this false information with new beliefs, or is it something different than that? Can you walk me through your thoughts on that? Absolutely. First of all, it's not just you and me. It's not just women. Everybody has this. So let me back up for a second and talk about the cult of culture, which is another one of our concepts. We're steeped in sociology and informed by psychology. So the cult of culture is this 
nonstop onslaught of media, social media, advertising. And by the way, it started long before the internet. So I grew up with this too, with magazines and television. And we all learned how and why we're not good enough. Okay. Including the people that seem to have it all. Everyone, if they're, if they're in a safe enough situation, will show that to you. That's the power of a group. Because in one-on-one, it's, it's beautiful, it's essential, it's wonderful to be seen. But in a group, especially when people are different from you, if you're in a room with the executive and the janitor, and they're both sharing some similar shame like that, you realize, wait a minute, it's not me. It's the culture. A dysfunctional culture creates crazy feelings, creates anxiety and depression, which everyone has had throughout the pandemic and probably has to some significant degree anyway. Not because we're defective or dysfunctional, that's a normal reaction to this craziness. So for me, the question is, how do we, we can't turn off the noise, but how do we stay aware enough to not let it enter our space? And part of it is by sharing in communities, however we feel safe about that with one person or a few people, it could be friends, it could be uh, colleagues, whomever. But we have to have places where we're deconstructing this noise and realizing that these things that we've come to feel ashamed of ourselves for and insufficient about are just the negative feelings that sell soap. It's not about us individually. I don't think that, you know, simpler cultures that don't have tech, I don't think they're they're thinking and feeling these things. I think they're too busy surviving and getting along and, you know, doing their cultural things that they do. So that is 50% of it. Now, the other 50% is, yeah, but I still feel like that. So what do I do? And again, it's a matter of speaking to yourself on a regular basis and tempering these things with what else is true. Mm. So for example, in my development, when I was in high school, by the time I was a junior, I maybe it was a sophomore, I I just couldn't learn anymore. It was just too traumatic at home. And I I really didn't learn anything about history from a certain period of time. And even though I went back later and I learned some things, I'm deficient in in that. And I see that when, when these subjects may come up. Well, for years, I've just felt so much shame about it. But the more education I got, the more I realized nobody knows everything. It's fantastic to be able to ask a question when you're curious, Mm -hmm. because if you've ever found yourself being in a a group of people talking about something that's not your specialty, and you're very engaged and you're very curious, but you're afraid to ask a question, it's happened to me a million times because I don't want to look dumb. How sad I don't get to have my question responded to. So it's a matter of constantly self-soothing ourselves looking deeply at what what is the origin of this idea? Who told me this? Who does it really belong to? That I'm a dummy? Or is it my father that told me I was a dummy? Or this boss that told me I couldn't? Maybe later I realized, I think this boss was jealous of me. I mean, that would explain a lot. Or whatever the reason was, only we can really deconstruct these tidbits of memories. And as I said earlier, when it's trauma, it doesn't come in a nicely laid out paragraph. 
It's that feeling of your face getting red and heated up when somebody says something demeaning to you in front of others. So the process of becoming is a lifelong journey. And to be able to enjoy it and sort of smile the way you would with your child, not understanding that skinning their knee and that pain, it's not going to last forever. But as the parent, it's not our place to say you are okay. We can't tell people what their experience is. So we let them say it hurts and blah, blah, blah. And then we say, I bet it does hurt. And let's see if we can make it feel better. And then maybe you do something else and then you can ask them later, well, how is your knee? And they will make the association. Oh, well, with some time, it doesn't hurt so much now. You need to give people the space to hurt and the space to own their feelings, good and bad. And when we own them, we can better understand them. Wow, such a great answer and so many questions. Can we go back yeah. <laughs> to, to the part about how you didn't, how you wouldn't ask a question? Mm-hmm. Like I, wow, I, that brought me back to a place where when I was in my, my previous role, I was the chief learning officer and I had this expectation in my mind, like, oh, well, people, people would say, do you know of XYZ book or have you read this or did you know, all these things. And guess what? Most of the time I had not, did I always say the real answer? I did not because I did, because I felt shame about, well, I should know that. Right. Did you read, are you familiar with, I got more comfortable saying, Oh, I don't know that who is it? Or I'll look them up or can you send me a thing? Um, but like in that role with the people in the room and like all that stuff, sometimes I said, yes, when I did not read that book. (laughs) That's what I really like sharing that because I have to believe a lot of people can identify and I can't sit here and tell you, I will never do that again. I I'm going to assume I will, but I've also noticed, and this is one of the things that really helped me go deep in myself, ask myself questions and see what that was about. I get that it was about shame, but how can everybody know everything? Even if it's in my field, even if others think I should know that, but I have seen so many brilliant people ask the most basic questions because they're curious and it doesn't occur to them apparently to worry what anyone thinks they want to know. So I think we have to find ways to permit ourselves to be hungry for, for what even may seem like the most basic knowledge. And, and when you finally do get the courage to ask that inevitably, somebody else says, yeah, what is that? Or yeah, if it's exactly. an or if it's a whatever. And I coach people about this all the time. Like, oh, if you have the question, usually at least one other person has that question too. And sometimes they're more senior than you, right? Exactly. And they, yes. and they have the, the power dyma- dynamic in the room is such that, you know, maybe they feel like they're safe enough to ask that question. Exactly. You might not. Exactly. And the other thing is when you ask the, that person for their expertise, you're giving them a gift because it, if I have expertise to share, I appreciate being invited to do so. So it's not, it's not just about us. When we put ourselves aside to hear someone else's story or someone else's information, whatever that might be, 
not only are we more receptive and more likely to remember it rather than go with them, they think I'm stupid, blah, 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 but we are also putting ourselves in a position of providing for that person their due. Oh, you know that. Please share it. it instead of looking at trying to learn as a deficiency, it's really a wonderful, strengthening, powerful tool. Yes. It's not a deficiency. It's curiosity. I love that. I also loved in your previous answer, how you talked about this question. What else is true? Exactly. What a a powerful question that is. So let's say I, uh, I, I said something that insulted somebody and maybe I apologized and they forgave me and we kept talking, but it's okay with them. But then I go home and I, I just think, um, I can't believe I said that. I know better. And, you know, we can beat ourselves up, but that's not really productive. But if I use what we call the kaleidoscope, which is another of our 12 core concepts, a kaleidoscope shows you zillions of perspectives of the same thing, and they're all real. So look at it from another side. What else is true? What else is true is that I said something careless. Clearly, it hurt that person's feelings. And I felt terrible because I I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So I can also realize what else is true is that wasn't my intent. I apologize. And I'm going to remember the next time to be more careful about the way I articulate that kind of thing. Whatever you would say to anybody else, to someone you love or someone you don't even know so well, we're so hard on ourselves. That's not our job. Our job is to do the opposite to ourselves of what others may have done. Self-soothe yourself and realize, okay, honey, okay, it's okay. That wasn't maybe the best choice, but that's not the totality of me. It's really hard and it's really, really important to keep reminding ourselves that we're moving forward, that the greater awareness, even with the same backsliding behavior, is something. And to keep track of your growth so that you can honor, okay, I did it incrementally better this time. So great. My, so my last, um, my last question for you is, goes back to something you said earlier at the beginning of our discussion. You talked a bit about gratitude and staying present. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by radical gratitude? Like, why is it important to practice and how can we do it? Okay, radical gratitude is for me, the thing that has changed my life the most. And actually the reason I've created these 12 core concepts and we offer programs for underserved communities, we work with really diverse populations is because this is what helped me in my life get out of the anxiety and depression that I really suffered as a child. So radical gratitude is simply this, to be aware throughout your day of every time you encounter a close call. How often do you almost trip down the stairs, press send, get hit by a car, whatever those things are, something almost drops from a shelf, take a moment because you would take more than one moment if that accident had occurred and you would be on your knees wishing and praying, why didn't I do this or why did this happen? If you take a few minutes every single time you have a close call and what I, I just jump around and go crazy. 
and uh, then you cannot help but remind your unconscious, I don't believe it. I am so lucky every single day and I have survived this intact. It's, it's amazing. The purpose of radical gratitude is to live with hyper awareness of the beauty in your life. And when you do that, you will be surprised at how many times you're spared. So it's so easy to keep track of the negativity. Here's a way to keep track of the positivity. Oh, I love that so much. And what a, what a great sentiment to leave listeners with. But I'd love to understand um, how we can connect with you. Yes. How do the listeners find you? Yes. So we have, um, we created these TNM, narrative method, DIY human card decks. And the reason we created them is so that people could do their own groups or one-on-ones or use them for writing prompts. They're all based on the 12 core concepts. They are deep and they will guide you to who you really are. And right on the box, it says, you don't need a license to use your humanity. Mm. You don't need to be a therapist. We all (laughs) have this built in. So when you tap into these strengths of your humanity and your compassion and empathy and capacity to be there for others, not just for yourself, your life becomes closer to who you really are. Mm -hmm. And then answers become far easier to respond to, like, what kind of job should I have? Where should I spend my free time? Is this relation good enough? All of these kinds of questions become easy to answer when you are clear about who you are and where you want to go. And is that something you can do yourself and with? Totally. Yes, you can use them for journaling. And by the way, we offer two free online uh, workshops every week, Thursday nights from 5 till 6.15 Pacific time. People come from all over the world. Um, And we typically look at fascinating videos and go into breakout rooms with prompts. And then Sunday mornings where we will look at some stimuli and do writing prompts and then come away with a one page zinger that we share with everyone else. It's not about excellence in writing. It's about channeling your creativity. Oh, I love those resources so, so much. So we're going to share um, where you can find those in our show notes. And I'm just so grateful for our discussion today, Sherry, and our connection. Thank you so much. And Again, if you go to the narrativemethod.org, you will find all of these resources and I invite your audience, please come join us. Love to have you. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.